0: Hello everyone and welcome to the August 28th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd Skiernan and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A Fresno County Superior Court judge has dismissed a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of a Fresno paramedic who was killed in a 2015 air ambulance helicopter crash. The ruling was based upon the application of the exclusive remedy provisions of the workers' compensation law. Brooke Juarez and her children sued Rogers Helicopters and American Airborne, claiming they were negligent in the maintenance and operation of the Bell 407 aircraft that crashed in Kern County, resulting in the death of her husband, paramedic Kyle Juarez. At the time, the Skylife Air Ambulance Bell 407 Helicopter was carrying a patient from Porterville to Bakersfield on a routine transportation mission. Kyle Juarez was a flight and ground paramedic and nine-year veteran of American Ambulance and spent the last three years on the Skylife team. Rogers Helicopters, Rome, and American Airborne EMS moved for summary judgment of the lawsuit claiming that the workers' compensation exclusivity protects them as decedent Kyle Juarez's joint employers. The decision reviewed the history of the two joint employers. In 1991, American Airborne entered into a general partnership with defendant Rogers to form Rome DBA Skylife. The helicopters used in this partnership were jointly owned by and registered to Rogers and American Airborne. Rogers provided aircraft operations, and American Airborne Ambulance provided medical support services. The Rome Skylife Standard Operating Procedures Manual includes many provisions indicating a level of control by the partnership over workers such as Mr. Juarez. This includes requirements relating to clothing, uniforms on the job, grooming, weight limits, where and when employees will work, scheduling, and the required certifications. Juarez attended monthly safety meetings and mandatory quarterly staff meetings along with pre-flight briefings and post-flight debriefings. Mr. Juarez wore a Rome Skylife uniform and participated in decisions whether to undertake each flight and in the cleaning of the aircraft. Juarez was not paid directly by Rome Skylife, but Rome Skylife indirectly paid his wages and benefits when invoiced by American Ambulance. He was a skilled worker with substantial control over the details of his work, though he was supervised by American ambulance personnel, effectively a Rome Skylife partner with respect to their provisions of medical care. Joint employment occurs when two or more persons engage the services of an employee in an enterprise in which the employee is subject to the control of both an employee may have more than one employer for purposes of workers' comp. And in situations of dual employers, the second or special employer may enjoy the same immunity as does the first or general employer. Once a special employment relationship is identified, the special employer is liable for workers' comp coverage. And that employer is immune from a common law toward action. The court found that the undisputed facts in this case demonstrate that American Ambulance was the general employer and that Rome Skylife was his special employer. Because his death occurred during the course and scope of his employment, the court ruled that his family's legal remedy is through the workers' compensation system. This by law precludes them from suing the defendants. Also killed in the December 2014 crash was 49-year-old pilot Thomas Ample of Bend, Oregon, an employee of Rogers Helicopters, 42-year-old critical care nurse Margot Lopez of Hanford, a three-year Skylight veteran, and the patient, 40-year-old Catherine Ann Brown of Springville, who was employed as a substitute school teacher. The cause of this crash is being investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board. The NTSB has not yet issued a report of its findings. Specialty pharmacy firm U.S. Bioservices Corporation has agreed to pay $13.4 million to settle U.S. government claims that it pushed patients to refill prescriptions of Novartis AG's iron overload drug Exjade in exchange for referrals from the Swiss drug maker. million will go to the federal government, and the remaining $2.8 million will be divided among several states. The deal would resolve a civil lawsuit claiming that U.S. federal and state insurance programs were illegally billed for XJ jade prescriptions that stemmed from kickbacks. The company said that it was not admitting wrongdoing as part of the settlement. According to the lawsuit, U.S. Bioservices encouraged patients to refill ExJade prescriptions by having its nurses call them with one-sided advice, emphasizing the dangers of not treating iron overload and downplaying the drug's side effects. According to the lawsuit, ExJade had been linked to severe side effects including kidney and liver failure and gastrointestinal bleeding which have resulted in deaths. U.S. Bioservices also assigned a group of employees known as patient care coordinators to call patients and urge them to refill their prescriptions. U.S. Bioservices competed with two other pharmacy companies that distributed the drug, Bioscript Incorporated and Express Scripts Unit at Health Groups Incorporated for patient referrals from Novartis. According to the lawsuit, Novartis would dole out the referrals according to how many refills each pharmacy achieved. As a result of the scheme, the government-run Medicare and Medicaid programs were allegedly billed for prescriptions tainted by kickbacks violating federal law. Novartis previously settled claims that it paid kickbacks to promote x and other drugs for $390 million in 2015. Bioscript and Accredo also previously settled claims, collectively paying $75 million. And now, our crime report. Federal authorities claim that a small pharmacy in Utah and a doctor's office in Tennessee have been implicated in an alleged kickback scheme that used San Diego County Marines to defraud the military's health insurance provider out of at least $67 million. The allegations add to a growing number of investigations into fraudulent prescriptions of compound medications, which are high-priced drugs custom-made by pharmacists to tailor to a patient's specific needs. The investigations have led to arrests in similar cases across the country and a change in how TRICARE, which serves 9.4 million active, retired, and reserve military and their families, pays for such drugs. According to the insurer, in just the first four months of 2015, the cost of claims to TRICARE for compounded drugs surged to more than $1 billion. Federal investigators say that a chunk of those claims came from a pharmacy in Bountiful, Utah, that was issuing prescriptions to patients in Southern California. No arrests have been made in the San Diego-based investigation, which is still ongoing, but Federal authorities described their investigation in a sealed search warrant affidavit filed in March and a complaint filed publicly by the U.S. Attorney's Office as part of a civil asset forfeiture case against a Tennessee couple. The pharmacy at the center of the probe was formerly known as Medicine Shop, a franchise opened by noted compound pharmacist Court DeLost in 1993. The former president of the Utah Pharmacists Association and Young Pharmacist of the Year for Utah sold the business in 2014 to two people who are identified in court documents only by the initials T.S. and W.W. The pharmacy in the town just north of Salt Lake City had a license to ship medications to California. The vast majority of the prescriptions were authorized by emergency room physicians who served as medical directors for Choice MD, a medical practice in Cleveland, Tennessee, owned by Jimmy and Ashley Collins. The physicians are not named and only referred to by their initials. Authorities say the medicine shop billed Tricare for over two. 1,700 compound prescriptions authorized by just one of the doctors, resulting in more than $47 million in reimbursements. During the same period, the same doctor wrote only three non-compounded prescriptions for TRICARE patients. Investigators say the specialized drugs went to a network of Southern California Marines who were recruited by fellow Marines to participate in a medical study. Their Marines were paid $100 to $300 a month to talk to the doctors over the phone in a telemedicine exam. Investigators tracked some $45 million linked to the medicine shop that moved around in bank accounts owned by the Collinses and several entities in their control. This included $4.4 million allegedly paid to unnamed recruiters during the first half of 2015. Prosecutors allege the Collinses laundered the illegal proceeds by buying four properties in Tennessee, including a farm and a shopping center for a total of nearly $5.7 million. In the motion to dismiss the case, the lawyers defending them denied their clients were involved in any of the kind of health care fraud. In mid-2015, the medicine shop changed its name to Prescriptions Plus Pharmacy. The pharmacy changed hands again in October 2016 and has been renamed Bontiful Drugs, recapturing the pharmacy's original name when it opened in 1910. The new owner said the business is not associated with the old owners and that she was not permitted to discuss the investigation. The Labor Commissioner's Office cited at Chula Vista Restaurant more than $274,000 in back wages and penalties for multiple wage theft and labor law violations. Durante's Incorporated, doing business as La Querencia, was ordered to pay nearly $165,000 to six workers who worked an average of nine hours per day, five days a week, without breaks, and were paid on average less than $6 an hour. La Cuernecia was also fined over $110,000 in civil penalties, workers' compensation penalties, and wage statement penalties. The Labor Commissioner's Office launched a complaint-based investigation at the Mexican restaurant last January and found that the owner was underreporting the number of workers employed there. The owner claimed only five employees, but investigators found 14 workers employed Investigators in February cited La Querencia $21,000 for failing to carry adequate work comp insurance. And an audit of the restaurant revealed that La Querencia management denied six workers meals or rest breaks and paid them a straight rate of $50 per day, regardless of the number of hours worked. The Labor Commissioner's Office last month cited the restaurant over $72,000 for minimum wage violations and penalties, over $83,000 for liquidated damages, over $1,700 for unpaid overtime wages, over $3,000 for meal period violations, over $3,200 for rest period violations, and another $1,200 for waiting time penalties, all payable to the six affected workers. Additionally, the Labor Commissioner's Office fined the restaurant over $54,000 for wage statement violations and nearly $35,000 in civil penalties for minimum and overtime wage violations. When workers are paid less than minimum wage, they are entitled to liquidated damages that equal the amount of underpaid wages plus interest. Waiting time penalties are imposed when the employer fails to provide workers their final paycheck after separation. This penalty is calculated by taking the employee's daily rate of pay and multiplying it by the number of days the employee was not paid up to a maximum of 30 days. The civil penalties collected will be transferred to the state's general fund as required by law. Eight years ago, Thomas S. Powers, M.D., a physician at Open Care Medical Clinic in Santa Ana, who claimed to specialize in anti-aging and preventative medicine, cosmetic medicine, stress management, pain management, addiction recovery, weight management, and regenerative medicine, was accused of poor record-keeping by the medical board. In a newer case filed last October, the medical board accused Powers of prescribing himself pain medication and more sloppy record-keeping that led to him over-prescribing medications to four patients, including one who died. By last April, Powers and his attorneys signed off on the medical board's license probation order due to what they acknowledged was gross negligence and repeated negligence in the treatment of four patients. During the 2017 probation imposed for the new offense, the Medical Board ordered that Dr. Powers shall not order, prescribe, dispense, administer, furnish, or possess any controlled substances listed on Schedules 2 and 3 except for anabolic steroids. But Dr. Powers did not last long on his newly imposed probation. The Medical Board reported his probation violations in the new August 18 cease practice order saying that he tested positive for marijuana on July 30, 2017 and August 6, 2017 and failed to check in daily for 10 days. Accordingly, Dr. Powers is now prohibited from engaging in the practice of medicine. It will be up to the Board to decide if and when Powers can resume a medical practice in California. And United States Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced in July that Dr. Powers was among 13 others in Southern California and more than 400 defendants nationwide charged in federal court in Los Angeles with being part of the largest health care fraud operation ever undertaken with false billings totaling about $1.3 billion dollars. Federal prosecutors specifically allege that Dr. Powers authorized prescriptions for patients he never examined, receiving payments from another defendant, Newport Beach resident Anthony Paudano, who allegedly got about $1.2 million for re- referring the prescriptions to a local pharmacy that billed more than $4.8 million to TRICARE, the health care system for military personnel and other Department of Defense employees. And in regulatory news, August is the final month of the California legislative session for the year. Over the last several years, several bills passed during the final months of the legislative calendar, and some even arrived, sometimes by surprise, during this last month. Indeed, SB 863 and its sweeping changes were introduced, passed, and signed by the governor all in the last week of the 2012 legislative session. This year, AB 570 seems to be the only substantial workers' comp-related proposed law on the horizon, at least as known to the industry pundits at this time. AB 570, in broad analysis, is an attempt to roll back the permanent disability apportionment rules. The purpose of the bill is to eliminate elements of what the author believes is gender bias in the workers' comp system. According to the bill's author, women can receive disproportionately low compensation amounts for work-related permanent disability because of the gender-specific conditions of pregnancy and childbirth. The bill author points to specific examples where the evaluating physician has pointed to pre-existing conditions that have involved pregnancy or childbirth in apportioning the causation of subsequent industrial injuries. And proponents of the bill argued that this constitutes an inappropriate discrimination since male injured workers can never have their disability apportioned in this manner. This bill would prohibit apportionment in the case of a physical injury occurring on or after January 1, 2018 based on pregnancy, childbirth, or other medical conditions related to pregnancy or childbirth. It is similar to AB 1643, which was introduced in 2016, last year, which would have prohibited apportionment in cases of physical injury based on pregnancy, menopause, osteoporosis, and carpal tunnel syndrome. Last year's AB 1643 passed the legislature, but it was vetoed by the governor. According to the legislative analysis of this new bill, This issue has been presented to and debated in the legislature in one form or another for at least the last eight legislative years. But unlike previous bills on this subject, AB 570, which is the new bill, expressly adds language that brings in other medical conditions that are related to the gender-based condition. Thus, the bill appears to expressly prohibit apportionment not merely to pregnancy or childbirth, but to any other medical condition that predates the industrial injury if that prior condition can be shown to have been related to a pregnancy or childbirth. For example, if a pregnancy causes back problems and those back problems persist as a chronic problem, the bill appears to preclude using that pre-existing condition as a basis to apportion a of subsequent industrial back injury. Opponents of the bill are concerned about the scope of this provision and the amount of litigation it would create. They also note the underlying principle that employers should pay for what the job caused, but not pre-existing conditions. It is likely that if this bill is passed by the legislature, it will be vetoed by the governor as he has done in the past. Thus, this concept as a bill is alive in its eighth year, but certainly is not well. And in medical news, scientists in the UK and Sweden previously developed a new surgical technique to reconnect sensory neurons to the spinal cord after a traumatic spinal injury. Now they have gained new insight into how the technique works at a cellular level by recreating it in rats with implications for designing new therapies for injuries where the spinal cord itself is severed. The brain and the neurons, or nerve cells in the rest of our body, are connected in the spine. Here, motor neurons, which control muscle movement, and sensory neurons, which relay sensory information such as pain, temperature, and touch, connect with the spinal cord. Where the neurons connect with the cord, motor neurons bundle together to form a structure called the motor root, while sensory neurons form a sensory root. In patients with traumatic injuries, these roots can be torn, causing areas of the body to lose neural control. Surgeons can implant motor roots at the area from which they are torn, and they will usually successfully reconnect as motor neurons can regrow out of the spinal cord and into the motor root. However, this does not apply to the more troublesome sensory root, which surgeons could not reconnect properly until recently. These torn root injuries can cause serious disability and pain and were previously thought to be impossible to repair. But Dr. Thomas Carlsted from King's College London recently helped to develop a new surgical technique to reconnect the sensory root. It involves cutting the original sensory nerve cells out of the root and implanting the remaining roots directly into a deeper structure in the spinal cord. This area is called the dorsal horn, and it connects secondary sensory neurons that don't normally directly connect to sensory roots. When the team tried the technique in patients, certain spinal reflexes returned, indicating that the implanted neuron had integrated with the spine to form a functional neural circuit. In a new study recently published in the Frontiers of Neurology, Dr. Carlstedt and other collaborators set out to understand how the implanted sensory root was connecting with the spinal cord in the dorsal horn. By understanding the mechanism, they hoped to develop new treatments for patients with other types of spinal injuries. During surgery, they produced a similar spinal injury in the rats and then reattached the sensory root using the new technique. At 12 to 16 weeks after surgery, the researchers assessed the spinal repair by passing electricity along the neurons to see if they formed a complete neural circuit. They then analyzed the neural tissue under a microscope. The electrical tests showed that the neural circuit was complete and that the root had successfully integrated with the spinal cord. When they examined the tissue, they found that small neural offshoots had grown from structures called dendrites in the dorsal home. These thin offshoots had extended all the way into the implanted sensory root to create a functional neural circuit. So, what does this teach us about spinal cord repair? The researchers hope that this type of neural growth could also be used to repair other types of spinal cord injury. The researchers say the strategy of encouraging new growth from spinal neurons could potentially be of use in other injuries of the nervous system. For example, scientists could capitalize on this mechanism when designing new therapies for injuries where the spinal cord itself is severed by implanting grafts that encourage or facilitate this type of nerve growth. Weak patient admissions that plagued U.S. hospital operators in the June quarter are likely to persist through 2018 as patients fret about soaring out-of-pocket costs and the future of Obamacare remains uncertain. Companies including Health Care Incorporated, HCA, The largest for-profit hospital operator and Tenant Healthcare Corporation have reported dismal quarterly results, and they cut their forecasts for the year. High-deductible health plans, which shift initial medical costs to patients but have lower monthly premiums, are becoming popular, resulting in patients pushing back non-emergency surgeries. According to its financial reports, Tenant saw weaknesses in elective procedures, including orthopedics, that seemed to confirm the story of deductibles rising and changing patient behaviors. Also, HCA Tenant and rivals such as Community Health Systems Incorporated enjoyed a surge in admissions in 2014 and 15, thanks to the Affordable Care Act popularity known as Obamacare. But With big insurers reducing exposure to the program since last year, results for hospital operators are suffering in comparison. High deductible plans have been around for over a decade, but have become more popular as wage rises fail to keep up with rising medical costs. Participation in high deductible plans in the five years through January 2016 have risen about 76%. While this has been a problem for all hospital operators, HCA, which it, with its well-capitalized balance sheet and strong cash flow, is best positioned to weather the storm. But for tenant and community health, these problems add to the piles of debt which they have been trying to repay by selling assets. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the Comp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.